Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Let's talk about Tucker Carlson, postmodern patriotism, government suppression of human potential, and the Canadian newspaper bailout. Sorry, hear me out for a minute. There is this Canadian syndrome that I have spent the better part of my adult life trying to escape. It is this defeatist, self-hating, small-town idea that if we try for an A, we might get an F. So let's just give everybody C's and B's. What, what the hell am I talking about? You know what I'm talking about. We see it everywhere. But, but for me, it might be best illustrated by the Canadian film and TV industry. I will spare you a repeat of my critique of the policies that govern those industries and focus instead on the people I've known who work in them. Hell, I used to work in them, nominally. When I was younger, I made short films. I got government grant money. I went to festivals. I was a production assistant on shitty Canadian reality shows. I pitched TV series, got a development deal, banged my head against the wall for a few years, and then ran screaming and, and discovered that I actually liked journalism better and, and was much better at it anyhow. But other people I know, they stuck it out. They did well. They built careers. And then they hit a wall. Maybe more like a ceiling. Actors, writers, directors, even executives I've known, they hit 40 or so and they hit a wall. This is the Canadian syndrome that I'm talking about. I'm not talking about people who just didn't make it. We all know that film and TV, these are tough, competitive, glamorous industries where many will try, few will succeed, so on. I'm talking about the successes. People that you have seen acting on TV and in movies uh, also celebrated writers, people who actually got to direct or produce feature films. They hit a wall because we have structured an industry that by nature of its funding has set a goal, not of artistic excellence or, or financial hits, but of just, well, existing. And so it exists. And so they exist. Congratulations. But human beings, human beings are kind of wonderful. They are not content to merely exist. They want to excel or, you know, self-destruct, depends on who we're talking about. So, you know, when people hit 40 or 50 or so, they realize that that's it. There's no there there. They're never going to get wildly rich. They'll never make a masterpiece. The best they could hope for is what they have already achieved. They can kind of tread water. They can continue to merely exist. And some do. Some seeking stability bow out of making stuff themselves. They become film or TV teachers or film and TV funding bureaucrats or institutional administrators. Others just get out. They switch professions entirely. A lot of these people hoped for more. But they realize they've gone about as far as they can go. And, and, and they kind of 
tend to turn their dissatisfaction inward. You know, maybe they think, maybe I'm just not good enough. Which brings us to Tucker Carlson, that shitty little twerp on Fox News, that guy. He's been in the news lately for all sorts of uh, disgusting, misogynistic things that he's said in the past that have recently been unearthed. So you can be forgiven for forgetting about what he said in the past about Canada. But I have not forgotten. 13 years ago, Tucker Carlson said, anybody with any ambition at all or intelligence has left Canada and is now living in New York. Now, that caused an uproar across Canada when Carlson said it. And we don't even get Fox News here. So how did we retaliate? We put him on national television. Strombo booked him as the headline guest on his late night CBC TV show. We gave Tucker Carlson a ton of attention for his his juvenile, stupid diss of us, as I am doing now, 13 years later, because in our hearts, we feared that maybe he was right. And, And this, this is the Canadian condition. This is the syndrome that extends beyond the media world that I know. We fear that it's true. Maybe we are just a backwater. We fear that we are a massive, mega, nation-sized small town. A place where anybody who's any good will have to leave to realize their full potential. And so we build policy based on that fear. We can't compete in the big leagues, so let's not try. We settle for good enough. I certainly have that fear personally. That insecurity is embedded within me. The idea that the world is a legit meritocracy. And if I was truly good enough, my innate talent would have magically lifted me out of Toronto to New York or L.A. when I was 18 years old. But here's the thing. I happen to like it here. What if the thing that stops Canadians from realizing our full potential is not some innate, hardwired mediocrity, but the simple fact that we have bowed out of main stage competition. What if the very policies that we create to guarantee that we have industries making Canadian film and TV, and music and literature, what if it's those policies that actually limit the potential of our stuff, our books, our albums, our shows, and our movies? And what if the way to liberate your cultural creation from those forces, those limiting forces, is not to leave the country, but to simply opt out of those policies. Don't fill out the grant form. Don't apply for government funding. Make your stuff in an unregulated, unsubsidized space. Make it from Canada. Make it about Canada if you want. But try to make it as good as you possibly can, as good as the American stuff that we all love so much. Which brings us to postmodern patriotism. You think that I just shit on this country? Guys, I am a super patriot. Canada Land, every show on our network, has stricter CanCon regulations than the CBC. And we self-impose them. CBC constantly covers American news, features American art, interviews American artists and creators. We are only interested in Canadian stories. We could be making podcasts about anything but we choose to exclusively cover this country because the embarrassingly idealistic and yes, God damn it, the patriotic notion of this company is that our politicians are just as shitty as anybody else's. Our scandals just as greasy, our crimes just as sordid, our history is just as bloody and shameful, and therefore our stories are just as interesting. 
to us, anyhow. And the fact that that idealistic premise is actually working, that Canada Land has built an audience and a viable business out in this unregulated podcast wilderness, well, there's nothing that I'm more proud of, nothing that I am more excited by, which is why the news bailout is personal. I did this to escape the CanCon media system. When the government recently announced how they would be structuring the news media bailout tax credits, the first thing we noticed was how closely their criteria resembled the way that the Canadian film and TV industries get government money. And then we learned that that was no mistake. We were sent an advanced copy of a new book titled The Tangled Garden, a Canadian cultural manifesto for the digital age, written by former CBC executive Richard Sturzberg, to structure the news bailout in the image of the film and TV CanCon subsidies. And they listened to him. The idea, Richard Sturzberg's idea, is to do to news what they did to TV and film. And Richard Sturzberg joins me in a minute. Wait for it. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Jimmy Shin, Wesley Ross, Tori Merritt, Brad Toms, Sarah Robertshaw, Beatrice Collier Pandya, Adam Dickinson, and Ryan James. I'm Ryan James. I'm an anthropology professor in Toronto, and I support Canada Land because I like to play podcast clips in my lectures to show that I'm a cool, in-touch professor who knows what podcasts are. This episode is brought to you by AG1. Listen, taking care of your health is not always easy, but it should at least be simple. That is why for months now, I start every day by drinking AG1. I take a scoop of this green powder, I mix it in a canister with water, shake it up, and I drink it. I get hydrated, and I get energized and focused and ready to take on the day knowing that I have vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. These are things that science tells us we need. They are also things that I don't necessarily get every day outside of my AG1. Listen, if there's one product that I'm going to recommend that will help you elevate your health, it's AG1. And that is why I have been partnered up with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try it now and you'll get a free welcome kit that includes a shaker bottle, canister, a metal scoop, along with five free travel packs. You'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3 and K2 along with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. That is drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. Check it out. I think, Richard, you deserve some credit um, because (laughs) (laughs) I think you are the first person to document the the behind-the-scenes process that led to this new subsidy program. I've tried my best and I've had some access to the process. You detail, essentially, your reporting on meetings that I had no idea had ever occurred, Mm. um, that I suspected had occurred, but which I didn't know about. Mm. And it's not just a behind-the-scenes process that you witnessed, but it's one that, by your description, you played a pretty important role in. Can you tell us the story beginning with, with your dinner with Paul Godfrey? Well, what had happened was that I had written a paper commissioned by Rogers as a contribution to Melanie Jolie's Cultural Review. Uh-huh. And they said, well, would you be interested in you know, writing a, a kind of think piece on what should be done in the overall? And I said, yeah, sure. Rogers asked you this? 
Rogers. So, as, as a contract job for Rogers. Yeah. They just asked me if I'd do a think piece for them. Right. And not necessarily to reflect their views, but to, you know, make a contribution to the overall discussion. So I did. And one of the things I said in there was that newspapers should be able to have tax credits exactly the same way as Canadian TV shows and Canadian movies. Mm-hmm. Paul had read it and said, oh, this is very interesting. Would you come over and have a chat uh, with my board about this idea? And I said, sure. So I went over to see them. We had a chat about it. He said, well, can we work this out? What would it actually look like? So we pulled together a group of the newspapers and the magazines because they were unfamiliar with this. We can show you how tax credits work for TV and movies. You say this is the industry met. Yeah. You call them the media barons. Well, yeah, it was the various newspaper companies mm-hmm. and the magazine companies. Okay. And I, uh, I said, sure, we can show you how this works in TV and movies. And then what we can do is we can show you how it would actually work for the, your businesses. And we can cost it. Uh, so you can tell the government how much it's going to cost. So that's what we did. You actually worked out the numbers. And, well, there's no point doing these things unless you actually do the math. Otherwise, yeah. it's just pie in the sky. And this is the specific plan whereby the salaries get subsidized. Right. The way it works now is it's a labor tax credit in TV and movies, and it basically it buys down the costs of your labor. Mm-hmm. You get a check up front for everything. No, you get a check at the end. So what okay. happens is you incur this amount of cost. Then if when the movie or the TV show is finished, you send uh, the cost reports to the government, and then they send you a check. Okay. That's how it works. And they're essentially uncapped. So... The amount of money that it costs the government is a function of how much activity there is in the sector. So it would work exactly the same way. So what would happen is the costs of salaries for journalists, for photographers, for layout artists, for editors, et cetera, et cetera, would be covered with the same level of subsidy that you currently have for people working on TV and movies. Yeah. That was the general idea. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that I would just say about the tax credits, which is very important, is that there's no decision-making about it. There's nobody who says you have to apply to a fund to get them. You just get them as of right, like any kind of tax measure. So there's no interference by the government. There's no opportunity for the government to express a view as to what is worthy and what is not worthy, which would, of course, be completely inimical to freedom of expression when it comes to newspapers and magazines. Mm -hmm. So meanwhile, what was happening was that there was another piece of work that was being done by the Public Policy Forum, and the Public Policy Forum had released a, a big report on the situation of newspapers. Shattered Mirror, the Ed the Shattered Mirror, Yeah, the Ed Greenspawn report. And the Shattered Mirror uh, report is somewhat different in character. So what they wanted to do was to create a kind of fund yeah. that would only cover initially certain kinds of journalism, what they called civic journalism, which is journalism, as far as I can make out, that you know is about what governments do in large measure. Really laser targeted on the like our legislatures are not getting covered adequately. We're losing local journalism. That kind of thing. And you're saying no, no, no. That's that's too close a level of of government deciding who's a journalist and not. And 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 you write that the industry, the papers and magazines, also said, what about our guy who who what reviews about cars, bi- business news? What about sports news? What about culture? What about news? the layout person? What about all these things? Sure. Right? So in any event, these these two things were moving along in parallel. Uh, Personally, I didn't think it was a good idea to have any arrangement where the newspapers or the magazines had to apply, where bureaucrats or even the worthiest people were going to make decisions about what was okay and what was not okay to cover. Government deciding who's a journalist and who isn't or exactly. what, what's journalism and what isn't journalism. That seemed to me like very unwise. Yeah. 
So the whole thing culminated in a conversation that took place in Ottawa about, I don't know, maybe a year and a half ago. So both ideas were discussed, both the shattered mirror and the notion of the tax credits that we'd worked on. But nothing much happened. Uh, nothing much happened until the the decision in the economic statement of last December. Just to slow down a little bit, there's a couple steps that you write about. You write that the, the assembled press barons liked your approach and they agreed to fund the research. Yeah. So you had first been commissioned by Rogers for the first report, and then collectively the magazines and newspapers said, let's fund some additional research. Correct. And that was you doing the research? Yeah. Okay. And then there was a meeting where it was... Discussed with the, the sort of senior officials and all. The people who are making the decisions in government? Yeah. Okay. That's exactly right. So then there was a long hiatus. Nothing seemed to happen. The Melanie Jolie continued to say that she would not finance broken business models and mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. Then eventually she was taken out of the equation when the prime minister demoted her mm-hmm. and put in Pablo Rodriguez. And shortly thereafter, I don't know what the in- internal mechanics of the government are, obviously. You can guess. She flamed up pretty hard. Well, I think that's a generally shared conclusion. Uh, but in any event, then shortly thereafter, in the economic statement, they announced that they were going to put some money in. It's not just tax credits. It's a bunch of other stuff. But the bizarre part of it is this, that the entire thing is back-end loaded. So the smallest amounts of money are available now, this coming year, and the larger amounts of money are available five years out. Mm-hmm. Now, you would think of this money, it's what they say, it's there to make the digital transition. Well, what you would expect if you're successfully making it is your digital revenues are going up faster and faster across the years, and your analog revenues are going down. You need the money now. You need the money now. But you suggest why they're backloading that. You think that it's essentially some kind of a bribe to the media. I think it's cynical. I think it says basically to the media, if you want to get to the big money, then you better make sure that we get reelected. Yeah, because if it's a new government after this coming election, then... All bets are off. Well, Scheer has made it pretty clear that he he would support no such thing. Right. So So you refer to these meetings of the industry, uh the meetings of the media barons. From newspapers, we have tons of uh, ethnic press throughout Canada. Was there ethnic press there? So we had the newspaper lobby guys uh, were involved. So, you know, you can't cover off everybody because it's... Otherwise, you'd have to have a room of 300 people in it. What about digital media? Was was Village Media there? I can't remember whether the village was there, but digital media was definitely there. Yeah, was all I, digital. iPolitics? James to Baxter from iPolitics? No, no, it was the, the woman from um, the West Coast. What's the name? Who runs that very interesting website? Linda Solomon Wood from the National yeah. Observer? Yeah. She was there. How about uh, the discourse? No. We uh, tried to, what we tried to do, what we tried to do was we tried to have, you know, the full range of folks. Not, what not other everybody. digital media besides the National Observer was there? She was there to speak for digital media. It, it, this was this was basically to say the way the tax credits should work is they should work absolutely for digital media in exactly the same way as they would work, work for conventional media. Right. You get the money so it, it down the line, not up front, which well, would be the, kind this, of a block this, towards this starting a, something new. If you didn't have the money to start something, uh, you'd have to go out of pocket until you get the subsidy. Well, that's true of a television production company. Right. It's true of a film production company. But, but you're right about one point, which is this. When you make something, you're producing stuff all the time. It's not as though you can say, now it's concluded, like a television show, it's wrapped. So you'd have to have some way of you being able to, you know, file sort of monthly or quarterly, whatever your costs were, rather than, you know, when the thing was completely over. But that's a very small matter. 
it seems like I want to return to some of this, but it seems like they they you know these two competing plans, Ed Greenspan's and then your plan, mm. commissioned by Rogers, uh, initially they went with yours m- more than they went with Ed's. Well, it's not clear. They didn't take every one of your no, suggestions, no. but the the, it's the, the, not, the it's not clear because you see the way they've got it set up now, the tax credits appear to be capped, and they're going to set up a committee that's going to decide who actually qualifies. Mm-hmm. And what kinds of things are going to qualify? Well, you and I share a concern about that. I think yeah. that's a non-starter. But, but, but Whereas the, be- yeah. the better way to do it would be just to say this. Look, whatever the costs are, and I can tell you right now, we estimated that it would cost not $35 million a year, but about $200 million a year to give the newspapers the same, and the, the newspapers and the news business, including the digital news, about the same level of uh, support that we give to uh, television drama. That's what it would cost, not $35 million a year. And it's actually less than that because there's a bunch of other stuff in there. But it would be whatever it would be. I mean, to give you a sort of different example, right now we give tax credits uncapped to foreign movie and television producers who come to the country. We're currently spending $240 million a year to subsidize foreigners to come to the country to compete with our Canadian producers. I, I don't want to lose sight of something here. Yeah. I, recognizing that not everything you suggested was what was what was taken. If we have two competing philosophies, I, understanding that you wanted it to be uncapped. Uh, I wanted it to be I wanted it to be completely free of any uncapped, government interference. And you didn't want the government picking journalists. And, and, only, and I think that's very wise. But, it but, can only be free of government interference if it is uncapped. But this is really important, Richard. Essentially, we had Edward Greenspan saying, let's create a fund yep. that is laser targeted on the specific kind of journalism that democracies need to function. Oh. And then we had Richard Stern funded by Rogers, saying we need to subsidize salaries, they went with the Richard Sturzberg plan uh, with some modifications. And and that was a plan that was funded by Rogers, and then the, the research was then funded by what seems to me to be... No, they didn't, but that was the sad part. If they had gone with the Richard Sturzberg plan, it wouldn't be $35 million. It'd be roughly $200 million. Once again, I know uncapped, that you wanted... Uncapped, let me finish. Yeah. With with nobody sitting around making decisions on some kind of committee where you have to apply. That's super important. I think they went with the worst of both worlds. They may have. This is actually news, Richard. Like that the Rogers finance and then the media barons, by your description, the newspapers and magazines wrote many of the rules that dictated the government's ultimate plan. Not all of them. No, they but, didn't. but the framework. No, I hate to break it down for you. I'm sorry. It's not news that Rogers commissioned this. This was uh, this was done originally two years ago. Can you point? So, to, was this covered? That Roger was it? Was it? I mean, yeah, it, well, it was it was covered. And and uh, if you read the documents, you'll see it says very clearly this is was commissioned by Rogers. You're literally describing secret backroom meetings of of Canada's uh, legacy news media. Yeah, I, I don't want you to get too excited about it though, because <laughs> that's actually what this is: is that Richard Sturzberg, Paul Godfrey having dinner, uh, opening up their books to each other and saying, "How much money are we going to need? Let's fund some research." Meetings with senior government officials. There were meetings that I was invited to and that other digital news media w- were invited to. Never even heard about this one. Uh, there you go. But this is this is the nature of government itself. The original studies, they were in fact covered. We made an effort to ensure that they were covered. There was a whole release with press releases and uh, there was a sort of seminar on what it was all about. And then oh, it was on... There's public and then there's public. No, know? no, but this... Well, it, it wasn't for lack of trying, I can assure you. There was, a, there was press releases were put out. Okay. You just didn't cover it. 
I, I, I'll have to go back. I mean, this is my uh, beat, and I, uh, I, I had uh, no idea until I read it. I mean, we're talking about organizations. If, if anyone could spread the word, you say, not for lack of trying. These are Canada's biggest news organizations. Well, here's the thing. Here's If they want to publicize it, then they certainly can. You know, Kate Taylor wrote about it in The Globe. Uh, I did an op-ed piece for them. I'm sure I read these pieces, yeah. but this, it just seemed very different than so, what I read any, about your anyhow, it your So, anyhow, it was out there. Here's the thing that, that, that strikes me. We currently have this huge crisis in the country, right? About basically the collapse of the largest cultural institutions in the country, and there's very little conversation about it. That's true. I don't kind of understand why that's the case. Part of the book goes back and it talks historically about the struggle for Canadian culture, how it worked its way through various different administrations, really beginning in the 1920s, and then coming forward. And the last great set of struggles were really in the 1990s. And since then, it's as though people's appetite to ensure that we retain the integrity of our own culture has vanished. Oh, no. Let, no, me, no? let me clear up for you why there has been so little conversation about this. Wow. When the Toronto Star publishes, when they essentially use their newspapers to lobby for government funds, when uh, John Hardwick talks about how the, the end is near, we're running out of runway if the government doesn't do something soon, or when Paul Godfrey goes on to CBC and complains angrily that uh, despite his multi-million dollar retention bonuses, uh, the government's doing nothing. The public is very angry. They have very little sympathy for these people. They feel that these industries have done very little to adapt to the times. The public appetite for a news bailout is low. I host conversations mm -hmm. all the time here. The public is incredibly engaged on, on this, which is a very popular Canadian podcast. There's a lot of people who want to talk about this stuff. The problem is the Canadian news media knows that this is a losing issue with the public. And so the actual coverage beyond trying to kind of browbeat people into taking the side uh, and say, you must support the free press, you must support our, our plea for subsidies, uh, is actually being backlash. So they've kind of, the and this this is true throughout Melanie Jolie's public consultation. It's sort of nobody really cared. There was a shrug. You point to Rogers putting out press releases and whatnot. Beyond, you know, what you hear on this show, and I suppose Andrew Coyne speaking out against the subsidies, yeah. Uh, but, but it's not just about the news subsidies. It's also about Netflix and the way in which that deal was screwed up. It's about the fact that nobody is talking about the emergence of Time Warner or Disney in our markets. Nobody's talking about the kind of the pressures on the production industry. Nobody's talking about the fact that, quite apart from the newspapers, the TV news business is all losing money. Mm -hmm. Now, the thing is that Maybe people don't care. Well, I don't know. I think they do care, and I think they're going to be uh, mighty upset when Canadian news vanishes. I think that's, I think that's gonna... true, if that were to happen. But, I, but I, I think that your your argument is predicated on a much larger imagined sense of people's uh, what's in their hearts and minds. Uh, and I'll, I'll read to you from your own book here. Canada's different hopes and dreams, the different attitudes and beliefs, its different ties and bounds, the mutual understanding that exists amongst Canadians, the shared gossip, stories and laughter, the knowing wink, the self-deprecation and humble manners, as you describe what makes us Canadian. And when you put that into specifics, here's what you write. There are things we know in English Canada that will never be known to Americans. Don Cherry on Coach's Corner, Four Strong Winds, The, the Six, The Death of Gord Downey. Little Mosque on the Prairie, Sir John A., Bon Cop, Bad Cop, Stomp and Tom Connors, Truth and Reconciliation, The Rocket, We the North, Passchendaele, Degrassi, Sorry, both as a greeting, and Justin Bieber's great hit. Tim Hortons, Tom Thompson, The Handmaid's Tale, Vinegar on French Fries, Buffy St. Marie, Burning Down the White House, Deef the Chief, Trailer Park Boys, Poutine, and on and on. A real country, any real country has stories, people, food, historical events, etc. Uh, when the double doubles are ordered... 
and the dancing moose appear, everyone knows that they are home. Really? I don't know what you mean, really. I mean, that is, I know you're rhapsodizing in a way that's supposed to pull on my patriotic heartstrings, but I mean, first of all, if we went out on the street of multicultural Toronto, I don't know if we would find many people who would even be familiar with like three of those things. I mean, how many people do you think hold Stomp and Tom Connors and and poutine integral to their sense of identity? It depends on whether you're talking about first generation folks or second generation Canadians. By that I mean, if they're first generation Canadians who you know come here as immigrants, I'm not surprised they're unfamiliar with dancing moose and poutine. Does that mean much to you? D- dancing moose and poutine. Let, let, let me finish. Okay. Second generation Canadians, i.e., you know, kids who are born here and grow up here and go to the school system here and watch Canadian TV and so on and so forth. The fascinating thing about the Canadian immigration system and its ability to be able to assimilate immigrants is all the research shows what they turn into is they turn into little Canadians. That's what they turn into. They don't turn into, if they come, their parents mm-hmm. come from Congo, they don't turn into little Congolese Canadians. They turn into little Canadians. And you think that list is what defines them as Well, Canadians? I don't know. You can define it any way you like. It was just illustrative. The point of the list was to say nobody in the United States knows what any of this is. And a lot of that stuff is iconic. Some of it may be a little passe, but nevertheless, these are things that people have grown up with. The real point of it is this, that if you lose the major cultural institutions, you're going to lose all, you're going to lose an ability to discuss and to cover the things that make us different from the United States. And that list will evolve over time. Obviously, it gets different over time as, you know, as, as conversations change and as people come and go. But if you want to have a country which is able to discuss its differences, to celebrate its differences, to know its differences that is not the United States, then you have to have the kind of cultural machinery that we used to have in the past. The danger is we're going to turn into Ohio. If the only news and the only television you get in this country is from the Americans, you're going to have a problem. Why are you trying to scare me? When I think of what a culture is built on, Fear is not the first thing that comes to mind. No, but the, I don't know if you can build a culture on fear, and I don't know if that list of cultural references you made constitutes a real culture. It's kind of it's kind of funny to hear that list that, that since 1929, that's what we've come up with. Double double coffee, like well, this list is supposed to be a joke list as well as but, anything but, else. But, but can, but, can but, a culture is a bit of a joke to people when people think of these things? They kind of I, smirk when they I, think I don't about. Think, I don't think that's true. Besides that, the point is not that the culture is built on fear is that the cultural policies that support a positive culture are built on fear. That's a different thing altogether. Yes, the, the policies that, that you suggest are built on fear. They're built on and fear, fear of And fear runs through your book. I mean, the fangs, Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, Google, the, fang, the, these, the, the, the foreign fangs are coming to strangle our beloved but you, garden. But you know, it's interesting because uh, it's not, I don't think that the view that I take about the corrosive influence of the fangs is anyway strange. There is a gigantic tech lash going on throughout the entire world. Oh, there's e- lots of reason to be afraid of those companies. Well, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. And where the West, where the Europeans are right now is they are enormously advanced in terms of dealing with the corrosive effects of these companies. I mean, they're corrosive not they're corrosive not just at cultural levels. They're corrosive with respect to privacy. They're corrosive with respect to news. They're corrosive with respect to democracy. They're corrosive with respect to industry structure. Mm-hmm. And even now in the United States, you can see that, and these are these are these are the biggest country, companies in the world who are all headquartered in the United States. Even the Americans are becoming extremely, extremely anxious about them. 
I think you're missing what's actually interesting about Canada, what's actually unique, which is we're never going to legislate into existence a culture no, like never. America's or like Mexico's or like any other no, places. No, neither strange... do the Mexicans or the Americans. They don't legislate culture. No, because culture just grows. Exactly. That's my point. Yeah. I'm with you. Well, the culture that actually has grown in Canada is a culture of people who, if you give us a choice of what movie to watch, 99 out of 100 times we'll choose a movie that was not made in Canada. If you give us a choice of uh, what music to listen to or what book, usually eight or nine times out of ten, we'll choose an American one. We are There's nothing we're going to do that's going to stop that's, us that's from that's, living and breathing American that, culture. That, and there's no desire to stop people from living and breathing American culture. Absolutely. This, well, you can artificially make but, a system but, that creates Canadian films that nobody watches, but I don't know why. I don't know why you would want to extend that to news media or other... Canadi Canadians overwhelmingly watch Canadian news yes. and read Canadian newspapers and Canadian magazines. You know that there are more Canadian subscribers to the New York Times digital product than to the Globe and Mail? Now there is. That's interesting, eh? Yeah. That's very interesting. It's much better newspaper. They've also started to put in place Canadian journalists, and they have now a whole sort of Canadian office. Isn't that interesting, too? Yeah, it is. But the idea that somehow or another the New York Times or the Guardian... If the news business collapses in Canada, it's going to replace it. I don't think that's going to be true. But you define the news business as the old, dying news business. No, no, I don't. I, d I define it also as being the new digital news business. I define it as being all those businesses. But they weren't invited to your par dinner party. Yes, they were invited. It's exactly what I told you. National Observer and... And, and, and I know you're a little sensitive on the point. It's not just me. There's, there's like there's not, dozens no, no, of I'm, viable I'm, companies. I'm just, I'm just telling you that... That absolutely, it should be for digital news as well. Right, but That's it's not. Fine. What actually came out is not. Do you, did you see the details? Well, I, well, I've seen the details, and frankly, I still don't quite understand the details because they're still obscure. I can. Because they can, have the, this, these bunch of folks that are going to get together, trying to thrash them out. And, let me help you. They, 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 though, though we're waiting for the independent panel of journalists to be, you know, founded as the Justice League of who's a journalist and who is not, the government has already made it clear that this is a subsidy for written news. So. If you're doing YouTube news or podcast news or journalism on any f other medium, boom, you're out. Well, I think that's a terrible mistake. After that, you have a stipulation that what is a qualified journalism organization must employ two journalists or more. I ran this as a part-time unpaid gig for a year before I started hiring. So you've excluded anybody who's bootstrapping. And the one, the one new model that is showing a lot of promise throughout the states and elsewhere in the world is sole proprietorships. A lot of laid-off reporters saying, I'm just going to do this myself. They're out. In addition, specialty publications, it has to be general interest news. So if you're doing business reporting, you're out. If you're doing a music publication, you're out. So that wasn't part of your plan. No. And in fact, but that's we had this conversation when it came to the magazines, because lots of the magazines are general interest magazines like McLean's. Mm -hmm. And lots of them are highly specialized, whether it's Canadian business or Canadian, you know, sailor or whatever it happens to be. I mean, absolutely, they should be. They should have the same kind of level of. Uh, this is the problem when you start picking and choosing. You know, then you get into like really, I think, invidious kinds of distinctions, and that's not what we want. Well, the problem is uh, from their this point of view. It's all part of the culture, and it's all important. Even yeah. if you never want to, you know, uh, subscribe to Canadian boat builder in your life. It's nevertheless an important part of. the I culture. can't blame you for the. Uh, after all, your opinion was subsidized by Rogers, who are also left out of the subsidy, so they didn't get their way. Uh, no, they didn't. Yeah. Let me run by you an alternate idealistic and hopelessly romantic idea of what it is to be a Canadian and specifically what it is to be a Canadian content producer. To not be building some protected walled garden, hoping to uh, create the next, I don't know, Stomp and Tom or, or, or 
song that is on endless rotation because of CanCon rules. Here's the alternate version. To choose to make cu culture in Canada and mm -hmm. content in Canada, but to make it for the world. To be a citizen of the world who is in a unique position who, yes, we do not have the same rich culture that many, many countries have. We do not. But we do have something that is really, really unique here. We are a neighbor to the biggest cultural force the world has ever known. We are a keen observer of their culture. And we seem to have this uncanny ability to analyze and process what they're doing and make fun of it, to participate in their culture, to contribute to popular music and, and, and to, to produce even a lot of these scary digital companies at their earliest stages. There's a Canadian who's involved in even whatever cultural component you can, you can ascribe to writing apps. Well, there are Canadians that are doing that. Mm -hmm. That we recognize that we are incredibly good at making culture. And maybe that has something to do with the vantage point that we have of the world from, from where we sit in relation to the United States. And to finally have access to the entire world as an audience. I think that's totally fine. I think that what's going to happen is that a lot of these very large, uh, over-the-top streaming video services like Netflix and Time Warner and Disney and whatnot are going to be globally dominant. Uh, of course. So the important thing is that they have to commission Canadian content, which then inevitably will be made for the global market. I'm fine with that. I don't have any issue with that. In fact, I think that's precisely what we should be doing. And I think it's a big shift that takes us in the kind of general direction that you're talking about, which I think is important. Richard, what would happen if we just did away with cultural protectionist policies and cultural subsidies entirely? What would happen? Do you think people would just stop making culture and content in Canada? No, I don't think they're going to stop entirely. I think what would happen is that the news business will be uh, significantly reduced. I mean, there will be, you know, individual entrepreneurs who will cover this, that, and the next thing. I, I don't doubt that for a second. But the large national and regional news presence will be dramatically diminished. I think the amount of Canadian uh, production, whether it's drama or comedy or whatever, will significantly erode. I think it, I think it will erode our sense of ourselves. Quick update on what you just heard. I followed up to find out about that crucial meeting between the uh, so-called media barons and the federal government to see if what Richard Sturzberg said was accurate, that Linda Solomon Wood, the publisher of the National Observer, was there on behalf of digital news companies in Canada. Uh, Linda confirmed that she was at that meeting. I asked her if she was there representing Canada's digital news companies, and she replied, I was representing the National Observer. That is your episode of Canada Land for this week. I hope you liked it. You can email me about it at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I do read everything you send. We are on Twitter at Canada Land. Our website is canadalandshow.com, where you will find a new episode of our pop-up podcast, Wag the Doug. Jonathan Goldsby and Allison Smith surrendered their freedom. They literally had to surrender their freedom to the Doug Ford government to go into budget lockup. And that is where they recorded this new episode of Wag the Doug. Check it out. Our senior producer is Kasia Mihailovic. Our managing editor is Kevin Sexton. Syndication is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you like this podcast, if you like our other podcasts, if you want to support what we do, we have a perk whereby you can get ad-free versions of all of our stuff. That is if you give us five bucks a month or more at patreon.com slash canadaland. 
We rely on your support. Thank you for it.